you would, please take a copy of God's Word this morning and open it up to the book of Galatians, chapter 6, as we continue going through this wonderful book in which the Apostle Paul is uh, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing to the Christians in Galatia. You know, uh, one thing that if you studied the life of Paul, if you studied the letters in which he wrote the epistles, it would become crystal clear that Paul is not a people pleaser. Uh, He doesn't mince his words. It's very obvious that Paul is not in ministry to develop fans. No, he's in ministry. God called him to develop devoted followers of Jesus. And I believe there's a big difference and a contrast between fans of Jesus and followers of Jesus. Those who uh, know about Jesus and those who know him personally and have experienced the life transformation of the gospel so that they are no longer the same person as they used to be. They have been set free from the rules and the rituals and the bondage and the enslavement of sin, and, and they've been set free to serve God. There's a big difference, vast difference. Paul is ending his letter here in Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 11. Paul says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. I want to pause here because uh, if, 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 I don't know if you know this or not, but the book of Galatians was his first letter that he wrote. Uh, chronologically, this is his first letter that he wrote and only one of two letters that he actually wrote with his own hands. As Paul, uh, as we're going to see... Um, just his whole life and uh, his limitations. Uh, a lot of scholars believe uh, his eyesight was going bad, and he gets to a point where he has a scribe. He dictates to the scribe, and the scribe writes his words down, and, and we have the other letters that Paul uh, authored or he wrote. But this letter right here, the letter of Galatians, Paul wrote with his actual hand. He did not have a scribe. He did not dictate it to someone else, but he himself wrote this letter. This is his first letter. And he says, look at what large letters I use to write this letter with my own hand. Verse 12, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Why? Well, the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. That's important. Underline that, score that, draw some arrows to it, because we're going to get back to that. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet, they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You can write a cross reference. This is going back to Galatians chapter 2. 
uh, verses 19 and 20, where Paul says, I have, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul, again, he's, he's bringing this in the forefront of our minds here. He says, you know what? I have been crucified. Neither circumcision, verse 15, or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, this new life that we have in Christ Jesus. Is this, this is what matters. This is what's most important to us. It's not the works of the law. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It, it, what, what really matters is this new life that we have in Christ. Everybody say new life. New life. That's what we have in Christ. He says peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, and all God's people said, Amen. Now, I have to be honest, this is probably not going to be the most well-received message that I preached in this series. In this series. And the reason why is... This passage of Scripture really challenges us spiritually. It challenges our comfort zone. You see, there is this idea, all right, uh, you know, that, hey, if, 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 you, if, you want to, if you want to draw a crowd, if you want to build a church, if you want to, you know, reach people, just tell them what they want to hear. Just tell them, you know, make them feel good about themselves. Just, just stroke their egos, just, just make them feel good about who they are and you know, where they are in life's lot and all this. Well, as we read this passage of Scripture, man, it, it, it challenges us. You see, there is this myth. There is this myth that once you become a Christian, once you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, once you are a child of His, well, the world should roll out the red carpet for you. That once you become a Christian, you know, you, you, they, should, they should just embrace you. They should welcome you. They should tolerate you. They should, they should give you preference. The world should just bend over backwards for you because you are a child of God. And that's a myth. And I think we're sorely mistaken when we buy into this lie. Now, if you're somewhat religious we call this a prosperity gospel you know where god wants to bless you with wealth and health and you know just find it just just you know he just wants to you know make your way straight in the world and the reality is is as we notice paul this isn't a prosperity gospel this is a persecution gospel you see what we have to remember is what Jesus said to his disciples. Jesus said something very profound to his disciples. He said, remember this. He says, a student is not greater than his teacher. He's not greater. Everybody say greater. Thank you. Let's start it again. A student is not greater than his teacher. Jesus says, also mark this down. If the world persecuted me, it will persecute you. Well, we tend to forget those words. You see, those words don't sit well with us as Christians. 
You know, we like the words that we can do all things through Christ. We, we like the words that, you know, all things work together for our good. We, we love these words, but, but the words of Jesus where, where he slaps us and he says, listen, if the world persecuted me, it will persecute you. Paul, speaking to young Timothy, says this. He says, listen, if you want to live godly, you will face persecution. And so therein is this, this, this contrast that as we are following Christ, yes, don't, don't misunderstand me. And, and, and don't think that, 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 you know what, yes, God is for us. By all means, God is for us. If God be for us, who can stand against us, the Bible says. Yes, all things do work together for our good to those who love God. Yes, don't, don't misunderstand me. God, God loves us. Don't, don't misunderstand me. That's God. That's who he is. He is slow to anger. He is compassionate. He's merciful. Don't expect the world to be God to you. Don't expect the world to be compassionate to you. Don't expect the world to bless you. Don't Because it's the opposite. There is this, this force that's totally uh, uh, opposite. There's, there's the Spirit of God. There's the world. Both are opposed to each other. See, the problem is, for us as Christians, we think that this is our home. And it's not. This is not our home. Heaven is. God created us for his kingdom. This is not. Now, our prayer is that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, yes. But this earth, it's not heaven. We can't expect it to be. One verse that I want us to focus on, verse 17. Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. See, I believe as, as believers in Christ, we should be willing to suffer for Jesus. As believers for Christ, we should be willing to sacrifice for Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we should be willing to serve Jesus. No matter the cost, no matter, no matter what, what, whatever it is, whatever excuse we can come up with, whatever limitations we feel that we may have, we as Christians... There's no sacrifice too great for Jesus. There's no suffering too mighty for Jesus. And there's no service too great for Jesus. In fact, Jesus says that you can't serve two masters. You see, you're either serving Christ or you're not. As believers, that should be our goal. That should be our aim. That should be our desire is to serve Christ. Christ. Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, when Paul says this, he's not exaggerating. Don't think, man, this, this sounds so spiritual. I mean, is Paul talking, you know, is this some figurative, symbolic speech that Paul is giving? He's saying, you know, from now on, let no one trouble me, cause me trouble, because I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Oh, that sounds so lofty, Paul. That sounds so spiritual, Paul. No, when Paul says this, he's not exaggerating. He is talking about literal marks on his body. Literal scars on his body. Now, you don't have to turn there, but let me, let me share with us how he got these marks. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says in verse 22, he says, and he's speaking about these prosperity preachers. They're just telling people what they want to hear. 
He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Guess what? So am I. Are they from Abraham's family? So am I. Are they serving Christ? I'm serving him more. I'm crazy to talk like this, Paul says. I have worked much harder than they. And listen to Paul. He says, I have been in prison more often. I have been hurt more in beatings. I have been near death many times. Five times the Jews have given me their punishment of 39 lashes with a whip. Now do the math of that. Five times Paul received this punishment of 39 lashes, 39 whips on his body. That's 195 times. 195 lashes Paul experienced. Paul says three different times, I was beaten with rods. One time I was almost stoned to death. Three times I was in ships that wrecked. Makes you not want to be a travel companion with Paul, right? And one of those times I spent a night and a day in the sea. I have gone on many travels and have been in danger from rivers, thieves, my own people, the Jews, and those who are not Jews. I have been in danger in cities and places where no one lives. And on the sea, I have been in danger with false Christians. I have done hard and tiring work. And many times I did not sleep. I have been hungry and thirsty. And many times I have been without food. I have been cold and without clothes. Besides all this, there is on me every day the load of my concern for all the churches. I feel weak every time someone is weak. I feel upset every time someone is led into sin. If I must brag, I will brag about the things I, that show I am weak. God knows I'm not lying. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the one to be praised forever. So Paul had these literal marks on his body. Now, see, you don't hear that message today in the church. You don't hear that, that this, this, this suffering for Jesus is a part of our, of, our, of our life as a follower of Jesus, that there is this call to commit, this call, this challenge to, to suffer for Christ. No, we don't, we don't hear that. We hear quite the opposite. And to be quite honest, that, that really does attract a crowd. You tell people what they want, you stroke their ego, and, but... but Paul, Paul is not out to attract a crowd. Paul is out to devote, to get people who are devoted to Christ to grow in their faith. And so let me share with us real quick. When Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Christ, the marks of Jesus. The word mark that he uses is an interesting word in the Greek. It's not a, a, a word that you know, would be common uh, when Paul says this, it's actually the word, we get the word stigma from this word mark, all right? And, and there are four, uh, four meanings to this word that I kind of want to just draw out this morning, because I believe as Paul was saying, listen, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Man, each one of these meanings, man, it, it so relates to us, all right? So if you're taking notes this morning, the first the first uh, meaning of this word, all right, first of all, it, it's a mark of ownership for slaves. And Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus to have this mark, this mark that he's talking about, the stigma, all right, means that you were marked as a slave. Now, it's interesting because when Paul is writing this, uh, two-thirds of the population were slaves, 
And, and one of the ways you would identify a slave, specifically who, who the slave belonged to, that slave would receive a mark. That slave would be branded to the master. And so you would be able to tell whose slave was who, uh, who, who the master of that slave, by looking at the slave and say, okay, there is the identifying mark that that person belongs to this master. And so when Paul says, listen, I have, I, have, I, have, I have the marks of Christ. In other words, he's saying, is, listen, man, I've been branded by the master. My master is Jesus. I belong to him. I am totally sold out to Christ. I am his servant. You see, we, we tend to flip that. We love the fact Jesus serving us. Serve us, Jesus. Do this for us, Jesus. But we understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, to lay down our life, to be marked that Jesus is who we belong to. See, Paul says, I've been marked for Christ. I'm a slave for him. In other words, if Jesus says, go, I go. If Jesus says, come, I come. Whatever Jesus wants me to do, I am there. I am his servant. I am his slave. He has bought me with a price. By the shedding of his blood, I belong to him. I have his mark. He owns me. And so the first meaning of this mark is that it's, it's, it's a mark of ownership. Second meaning of this mark is it's a mark of allegiance for soldiers. And not only does it mean that it's a mark for ownership, but it's also a mark for allegiance for, for soldiers. You see, Roman soldiers were branded with an insignia to who uh, the king was or who the general was. For example, Alexander the Great. How many of you ever heard of Alexander the Great? All right, he required his men to have on their chest uh, plate there the insignia of the uh, Greek letter Alpha or A. And it signified that they belonged to Alexander the Great. You'd be able to see these soldiers and you would know who their general is. You would know who their commander is. When Paul says, listen, I have been marked with Christ, you know who my commander is. You know who my general My allegiance is to Christ. Into him alone. See, it takes on a different aspect of the meaning than just, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Paul is saying, listen, man, I'm a slave for Christ. He owns me. My allegiance is to Christ. Another meaning of the word stigma, uh, it's a mark of devotion for followers of certain religions. Now, you have to remember, in Paul's time in Rome, they had a God for everything. They, 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 everything was a God. They had a multiplicity of gods, all right? And, and so what, what the pagans would do uh, is, is they would come to a, their, their pagan worship service, and they would come to the altar of their God, and they would receive a branding, right, this hot iron that represented their God, and they would be able to go out into the world, and people would look, and they would say, oh, I see you got a chair on, on, on your arm or on your head, and, and so you must worship the chair God, 
You see, this mark identified who, uh, which God they worshipped. That's, that's important. Because when Paul says, listen, I've received the marks of Christ, make no mistake about it, I worship the true God, Jesus Christ. Out in the world, people could look at Paul and say, I know who, who, who you worship, you worship Jesus and so it was a mark of devotion. And lastly, it was a mark of shame for criminals. It was a mark of shame for criminals. You see, this mark would be placed upon criminals who, um, who did a very serious crime. They committed a serious crime. And... The reason for this mark was so if, if they escaped, if they escaped from prison, you would see. Like, they, they, let's say, let's say if, if you were arrested and you were in prison for uh, stealing, all right, they would brand you, you know, very obvious, you would be able to see it, thief, all right, or murderer, all right? And so you would have this brand, and if you escaped from prison, you were back out in society, or even if you did your time and you were released back in society, society could look upon you and, and they, they'd see your crime. They would say, wait a second, you, you, you were in prison. You committed the crime of stealing. You committed the crime of murder. You committed this heinous crime, and you have the identifying mark that shows it. We have to also remember that being a Christian back in Paul's day wasn't popular. It was a crime to be a Christian. In fact, why do you think Paul was arrested? Because he was stealing Snickers at Walmart? No, he was arrested because of his faith. And when Paul says, listen, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. The world considers that a crime to be a follower of Christ. Paul says, man, I wear this mark proudly. If you look upon my life, man, I'm his. He owns me. I'm his slave. My allegiance is to my commander, Jesus. I am totally sold out. My devotion for Jesus. I like Tony Evans. <laughs> you want him to preach and I'll sit down? <laughs> we would do much better if Tony was here, right? <laughs> But it was the mark of shame for criminals. And what Paul is saying is, listen, I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed to be associated with him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And I think that's our challenge for us this morning. Is because we live in a world, don't expect the world to embrace your faith. Don't expect them to roll the red carpet out when you say you're a Christian, when you say you're a follower of Christ. Man, expect the walls to go up. Expect the mockery. Expect the ridicule. Expect the names. Expect the insults. Expect all of that. In fact, Jesus says, listen, man, if they did it to me, guess what? They're going to do it to you. You see, I believe what's really kind of missing in American Christianity is the sense that we've become really, really comfortable. We've become really, really comfortable. I mean, it's, it's a proof, you know, when I was in college, um, I, there was a student, his, his answer to everything was persecution. 
You know, when, whenever we were talking about, you know, the Bible, uh, I had him in Old Testament, I had him in New Testament, and man, his, his, his answer to everything was persecution, 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 you know, and, and when you think about that, if you look at areas where Christians are being persecuted, man, faith is, is just, it's, it's growing, man, you see such a movement of God in those areas, and then where you see where here in America, where it's just easy to be a Christian, there's, let's be honest, and there's really no, no persecution for us. Well, we may have a family member say, man, you're, you're a wackadoodle. Well, we may have some friends that say, hey, you know, you're a goody-goody two-shoes. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. You know, you're just going to judge me or look down upon me. And, and, but that, that's, we're not to the point where we could possibly lose our life where we have to go underground to worship, where we, have to, where we have to, you know, really, really, you know, we're not facing that kind of persecution. And so my challenge to us this morning, there's no reason why we should be ashamed of Christ, why we can't answer the call. Paul is encouraging them to be faithful. Be faithful. There's no reason. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Here's the question. As we looked at the four meanings of this word, stigma, Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. When people look at your life, do they see these same marks? Maybe not literal marks, but symbolically, figuratively. The mark that you are a servant of Christ. The mark of allegiance. The mark of devotion. The mark of shame. Not that we're ashamed of Christ, but that we're willing to endure the shame of the cross. The ridicule of people. Are we willing to lay down our lives for Christ? Are we that committed to do whatever it takes to go wherever we need to go? I hope and pray. That's, that's the challenge this morning. As we get ready to sing and as we just have a moment of just reflection, let me, again, it, it, just draw closer to God this morning. Ask Him to give you courage if you need it. Ask Him to give you wisdom if you lack it. Ask Him to help you strengthen your commitment to Christ. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that as we continue our worship, Lord, 
that we, as Paul could say, we bear on our body the marks of Christ, that we've been branded by the Master. We've been branded for Christ. That people would look upon our life and they would say without doubt, without reservation, you've been with Jesus. You're associated with him. We'd not be like Peter at that campfire. When the crowd began to associate with him, with Jesus, he began to deny it, but that we would boldly claim it and not be ashamed of it. Father, help us strengthen our commitment to Christ. That we would be completely sold out without reservation. That our allegiance would be to Christ and to Him alone. Help us to be followers who are devoted to Christ. And may, if all necessary, may we suffer the shame for the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and of those who have come forward and just doing business with the Lord and um, right now we are honored to have Jane here and I'm going to ask her if she'll come and share a little bit about First Care Um, and like I said just hear her testimony her story and allow God to speak to her um, or through her to us this morning and that uh, we'll, we'll come alongside of Jane and, and First Care, and uh, be more than prayer partners. Let me get you a microphone. There you go. Thank you. 
Let's give Jane a big round of applause. <laughs> wow, what a beautiful, beautiful service. I just feel so filled up. At first I was like, oh dear, I have to wait that long? But then I thought, well, praise the Lord, I get to worship the Lord before I speak. So that was wonderful. Okay, just to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, all right, my name is Jane Wynn. My nickname is Goldie. Um, I happen to be a Messianic Jew. Praise the Lord. Yes, I guess I didn't tell you that. So this, the scripture in Galatians was very appropriate because, believe me, I was persecuted for my faith when my parents, that's another story for another day, but trust me, there was a lot of persecution involved with my decision to come to know Jesus Yeshua as my Messiah, August 4th, 1974. So it's kind of unique because my husband was brought up Catholic. I was brought up Jewish. We came out of the hippie world together. If you saw Forrest Gump, maybe I would remind you of Jenny. <laughs> but I know, right? But we came to know the Lord together. Um, and he had, like I said, been brought up in the Catholic Church and me in the conservative Jewish synagogue. And so for the Lord to come into our lives and, and reach us the way that he did, we were professional musicians. We were on the road. We were not happy, you know, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, and the Lord just came in, and the gift that he gave to me the moment I accepted him was the gift of joy, and, um, and I'm so grateful for that because no one would have ever described me as a joyful person. My mother used to say, oh, she'll always carry around a pocket full of tears wherever she goes, so um, I'm very grateful for that gift. And it was interesting that we came to know the Lord in, I, I hope I can say this word right, ecumenical service. Is that right? Did I pronounce that right? Where there were Catholics, there was Methodists, there was Presbyterian, there was Baptist, there was all kinds of people in this prayer meeting. And we were just struck by all the love, all the different cultures, and everybody was singing songs to Jesus. We were used to playing in bars. So it was kind of amazing, you know, that we would receive all the love that was coming towards us. And we just knew at that moment that that was what was missing for us was God. But before that time, um, to, to try to just sort of, Lord, help me to know what to share today, because it can be a long testimony. But um, because I was involved in the whole hippie world, um, my father was a psychiatrist, so it was very interesting. I grew up in a small town in Iowa, and there were just about 5,000 people there, and I led a very sheltered life. So when I went away to college, it was in 1967, I was a music major, and it was at the time when the whole hippie world was just starting, and, and I had never been allowed to date, because we lived in this small town, and we were the only Jewish people, so we were never allowed to date non-Jewish people. So when I went to college, I didn't know anything about anything. I mean, my father didn't even sit down and have that conversation with me. So one thing led to the other, and I wanted to be accepted by everybody. So when people started doing drugs, I started doing drugs. When I had the opportunity to live in a commune, I lived in a commune. You know, I kind of did what everybody did. But, um, and unfortunately, you know, the love, sex, and rock and roll was true for me. And I ended up um, finding myself pregnant and not knowing what to do because I thought that if my father had found out that I even dated, let alone had sex, then got pregnant. I hate to think, if you, if you want to talk about Paul, Paul of Tarsus, well, my father was, uh, let me tell you, just Paul of Tarsus. I mean, he would have been so angry, and I thought he could have a heart attack. I didn't know what he would do to me, so I was scared to death, and I found myself 
in this situation and not knowing what to do. So finally all my friends got together and we decided that probably the best thing for me to do would be, I was living in Michigan at the time, still uh, I'd switch colleges, and it might be a good idea for me to consider getting an abortion. And it was in 1970, before Roe versus Wade, so abortion wasn't necessarily legal in our country, though it was legal in different states. So California was one of the states where abortion was legal. And um, so I decided to go out to California, but because I'd been in denial for so long, unfortunately I was well into my second trimester by the time I, I got out to California, and so I had to have an abortion in, in a hospital, and sadly, I actually had to go through labor. And um, when, I guess this is the part, you know, the psychological defense, um, I'm also a, a social worker, so I understand the psychology of everything. I went into denial for many, many years, and I didn't remember what the nurse said until 27 years later when I was working in a pregnancy center, going through my own post-abortion healing Bible study, and that was when the nurse said, oh, you would have had a perfect baby boy. So that went down under, and after that, I started doing more drugs, I started eating, I started doing everything I could to numb my pain. And um, eventually, you know, I needed to get help. Um, I ended up working with a psychiatrist very intensely for two and a half years while I was working through a lot of issues. And, um, but, you know, the Lord is so merciful because, as I told you, you know, I, I came to know the Lord. And, you know, my husband and I, once we came to know the Lord, knew we needed to get married. And we, we've been married 45 years this November. So that's a happy, wonderful thing. <laughs> and, um, and so through a series of moves, I ended up um, in the Pennsylvania area. And um, there I had gone to school, decided to go back to school and get my master's degree in social work. And I started working in private practice in a Christian counseling center for a few years in 1993. And then um, in 1997, I was offered to work in a pregnancy center. And um, I was asked to be the client services director, which would mean I'd have to work with clients and, and help them with whatever their issues might be surrounding unplanned pregnancy. But I didn't know that I had to go through the post-abortion healing group myself first before I could help anyone else because if there was any unresolved issues, I would need to be able to get that healed. So um, I remember going through that Bible study, and it was during the time when I had to acknowledge what I had done that all those years of denial just suddenly burst open. And they, you know, we always say that abortion is a wound to the soul. And that's exactly the case because, you know, women are born to nurture life, not to end life. So deep inside, I knew that what I had done was really wrong and that, you know, there was a, a deep scar there. So when I had to face what actually happened, I thought I would never stop crying. I was like just on the ground, like sobbing, wrenching, weeping, just like the women in Rama, you know, over the loss of their child. But thankfully, at the end, we have a memorial service. And um, because I knew my baby was a boy, in the Jewish religion, you name your, your child after the first initial of your father. And my father's name was Selig, so I named my son Samuel. And we, we were able to have a memorial service because for women who've had abortions, with all the shame, with all the guilt, there's no way for them to be able to acknowledge it and to have closure. So the memorial service just allows us to be able to have that closure. 
So it was a wonderful thing. And at the end of the Bible study, you know, I just felt so forgiven and so set free. And my heart was just wanting to help other women so badly on both ends. First of all, helping women to understand that having an abortion is not the quick, easy fix our society leads us to think that it is. And on the other hand, to help the women who were hurting from the trauma of abortion. Because our experience, and, and I've been counseling hundreds of women over the years who've had abortions, and they all say the same thing. We sit in church in silent shame because we don't think that it's okay to come forward and get the help we need. So part of our mission is to make sure that women and men who've been involved in abortion have the freedom to come forward and say, you know what, I need help. I recognize I did this. I need healing. And so what we do is we do offer um, post-abortion Bible studies all throughout the Palm Beach County area. Um, <clears throat> we have I, my position at First Care up to this moment has been the director of abortion recovery. I started working there in 2011. And so my job has been to make sure that all the women in need of healing get involved in the Bible studies. And we use two different Bible studies. One is surrendering the secret and one is forgiven and set free. And um, there are so many women, you know, even as we speak, in these Bible studies getting healing. And then those women decide to become facilitators themselves and they go to their churches and they start the uh, Bible studies. So it just keeps replicating itself, which is a wonderful thing. Because, you know, when you, you're, you're comforted yourself, you want to comfort others with the comfort you yourself have been given. And that's really what happens to women who are healed after their abortions. They're, they're very passionate. My team is very passionate. And we even have a, a pastor who's on our team who he and his wife were involved in an abortion before they knew the Lord, so he's available to speak to men, which is a wonderful thing. Because sometimes it's harder for men to come forward and admit, you know what, in my day I did help a woman to get an abortion. And that's a heavy load. And just as you're talking about Galatians, you know, and the freedom in, in Christ, you know, that's what we want to, we want to be able to be free from all of our past sins, and we want to know that we're forgiven and set free, and that there is grace and there is mercy. So um, that's really important. So then that leads us to what is the mission of First Care? Basically, First Care empowers women facing crisis pregnancies to choose life for their unborn children while sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ. That's basically our mission. And through First Care, since w the inception of the ministry in 2018, 403 babies have been saved from abortion in, um, in 2018, actually, in the year 2018. But since the inception of First Care in 1983, 13,000 lives were spared from abortion. So that's a lot of lives. And last year in Palm Beach County, sadly, there was over 5,033 abortions in Palm Beach County. So we have you know, a very strong mission in front of us. And one of the things that's happened with First Care is we've kind of changed our mission rather recently. And my job is always also going to be shifting um, because abortion recovery will now be a standalone ministry that we will be supporting and referring women to. And my new role will be to go into the clinics as a counselor to really help on the front end because there are so many women now that we're trying to reach who are very strongly abortion-minded. These are hardcore abortion-minded women who come in determined to have an abortion. 
So what we need to do, we have a, our, our medical clinics. We're, we're all medical now. We have ultrasounds. We help to educate them on what the abortion procedures are about so that they know what's expected of them. And we have to just be able to, to hear them, give compassionate counseling. So my role will be to step back into the counseling room to help with that and to help the clinic directors and their counseling to get the support that they need. So um, it's, it's an amazing front lines ministry and we really need your prayer because as you were saying, the persecution is there and, and you know the enemy, John 10, 10, though the enemy cometh not but for to kill and steal and to destroy, I have come, says the Lord, to give life and give life more abundantly. So that's really what we're up against, tremendous spiritual warfare. I mean, more than anything, we need prayer because being on the front lines can be very, very overwhelming. So then you might ask, well, what can I do to help? Glad you asked. <laughs> um, well, we have several events coming up, and there's a table out there where I have all kinds of flyers and everything that explains a little bit more about what you can do. But on November 5th, 2019, we're going to be having a movie night, and we want to invite everybody to that. And that's going to be an opportunity to learn more about First Care. January 19th, 2020, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. That's always a good time to, you know, maybe take stock of what you're doing, maybe have a special offering or a time of prayer for first care. And then April 4th, 2020 is our walk and run for life. So um, that's a wonderful event. And what we're starting now is the Baby Boomerang campaign. And we know that you've done that in the past. So there are baby bottles out there that you can take. And we can raise between seventy dollars and $100,000 just in that campaign alone. You might think, just filling a baby bottle would change? Yes, because all the churches that are involved you know, and all the people within the churches make a big, big difference. So every little small part equals a lot of help for our ministry. And the other thing um, that we want to do to reach the very strongly abortion-minded client, many times they choose abortion for a, a reason such as not feeling well, like I'm nauseous all the time. I just can't handle this feeling. So what we're doing is we're putting together anti-nausea kits so that these women can be given them right away so that they don't use that as an excuse. So um, if you all would be willing to maybe gather some of these supplies, you know, um, and you have that little list in front of you, the mouthwash, the tissues, the sanitizer, the tea, the um, sour lemonade packets, whatever's on this list, and, and bring everything together, you know, then someone from First Care can come and get the items and then put them into the little bags that we give to the clients in the counseling room. So, um, so those are some tangible things that you can do. But I'm just very grateful, you know, that um, your pastor opened up the service today for us to be able to share. And there's just so much love in this congregation. I just felt so free in the worship. And, you know, it just seems like a real family here. In Hebrew, mishpacha. We are family, mishpacha. <laughs> and we are. And so I want to just thank you again. And um, I'll be in the back if anyone wants to talk to me any further. Uh, anyone has, you know, an issue that they, they want to talk to me privately about, I'm there for you as well. And again, I just want to thank you and say shalom aleichem, peace be unto you. Thank you, Jane. Jane, I speak on behalf of uh, the church family here that whatever we can do, 
uh, to be partners in ministry and come alongside and because um, we're striving for the same thing. So people come to know Jesus and that he's exalted and glorified. So thank you for being here uh, this morning to share uh, your heart and your testimony and uh, also how we can be in, in, involved in first care. Uh, again, please see Jane after the service. She'll be right out there to pick up your baby bottles and fill those up with change. And she has other information as well. We want to continue our worship this morning through giving and